All right, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 2. <clears throat> oh, that I had a place in the desert, a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterous, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongues like a bow. Falsehood and truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor, and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves, committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression, and deceit upon, upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is, dead, is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his, with his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, his, uh, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the uh, pasture pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through and the lowing the lowing of cattle is not heard but the birds of the air and the beast have fled and are gone i will make jerusalem a heap of ruins a liar of jackals and i will make the cities of judah a desolation without inhabitation who is the man so wise that he can understand this to whom has the mouth of the lord spoken that he may declare it. Why is, this, why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I have set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after bells, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the morning women, call for the morning women to come. Send for, a send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How, how, we are, how we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord and let your ears receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters a, a lament and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into the windows it has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. 
For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. call it a privilege anymore, of um, a family tradition of watching The Elf with Will Ferrell. Has anybody ever seen that movie, The Elf? This determines how much context I give for this opening illustration. How many have not seen The Elf? Blessed are ye. All right. Um, so it's actually kind of, there's some funny parts in Elf. Um, one of the scenes that I actually do enjoy is this scene where Will Ferrell, who plays the elf, is in this department store where he got a job, and uh, the manager shouts, tomorrow Santa will be here, and Will Ferrell just goes crazy, and he's like, Santa, here, and then he says, I know him, I know him. Now. That, in a world of fiction, that makes sense. If you really know Santa Claus, that would be something to brag about, wouldn't it? In a world of fiction. But we don't live in a world of fiction, do we? We live in reality, uh, where we've got challenges, we've got problems, Sometimes those challenges and problems, maybe more often than not, come from here as opposed to outside of me. In a real world, where or on who should we brag? I want to talk to you this morning on this topic, bragging on the Lord. Bragging on the Lord. And I'm getting this from Jeremiah chapter 9, primarily verse 23 and 24. Let me re read this to you again. Which says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. In the real world, we ought to get excited about the name of Jesus. In the real world, now we might not actually do this because it would turn people off and they might think Christians are crazy. So we might have to restrain ourselves a little bit. But we should have the same kind of excitement well up inside of us to where we would want to say, if we just let it loose, Jesus, I know him. I know him. I know him. Right? But see, what happens is we get ourselves into a bind. We have some problems in life. We have some challenges. 
And we tend to turn inward. We tend to try to figure out, like, what can I do about my situation? What, can I, what wisdom can I come up with in order to, to get myself out of this? Or how much strength can I muster up right now uh, in order to survive this? Uh, or or what, what kind of riches, what kind of wealth do I have to fall back on if these things don't work out? And what happens is, whether we realize it or not, we tend to turn away from the knowledge of the Lord, turning to the knowledge of what we have. Turning to the knowledge of who I am. And then if we have anything, if we have any abilities or skills, then we are prone to boast in those things. We're prone to say, all glory be to me. My skills, possessions, talents, abilities, accomplishments. But the Bible says, don't boast in what you have, in who you are, in what you've accomplished. Boast in this one fact, that you know the Lord. That you know him. Now let me give you some context. In order to understand verse 23 and 24, we have to understand what's going on. As many of you know, we're going through Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is preaching this message of repentance and judgment to Israel. A, a, a message which is pretty much, for the most part, being rejected by the people who need to repent, and thus God's judgment is coming upon them pretty quickly. In verse 2, we see Jeremiah just wishing that there was like a little traveler's lodge somewhere far out in the desert so he could get away from these people. Why? Well, the main problem is the fact that they don't know the Lord. He says it right there in verse 3. They don't, God says, they don't know me. In verse 6, this is repeated. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Now, if we boast in what we have, in who we are, in our flesh, and therefore we know that, but we are turning away from the Lord so we don't know the Lord, what we have to recognize is at the very core of all of that, all boasting is lying. We're, we're, we're bragging about something that we ought not brag about, therefore we're living out falsehoods. And so I find it interesting, these first nine verses or so, mixed in with this problem of the fact that they don't know the Lord, there's, there's this issue of lying in the land. We could really almost summarize the first nine verses by saying they lie. They don't know the Lord. They don't know the Lord. They lie. Let me show, show this to you. Look at verse 3. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil. They do not know me. Their life is a lie. It's, it's taken over the land. It's a stronghold. They have a culture of falsehood. Yeah, and you know, if you tell yourself a lie enough, you start to believe it. You know that? I, I had this conversation with this 19-year-old who's about five foot four, nothing against people that are five foot four, but here's the deal. He wants to play in the NBA, and he thinks he's going to, all right? Problem. He doesn't really, he's not even that good of a basketball player, and he's 19, and he really thinks, he told me, I could destroy Steph Curry. He told me that. Really? You think that? Wow. You could 
destroy Steph Curry on the basketball like LeBron can, but you? <laughs> but he believes this. Why? Well, he's believing he's, it's a falsehood. There is no way he's going to play in the NBA. It's just not going to happen. But if you tell yourself something enough, you start to believe it, right? We can actually live out lies in our heads and tell ourselves the whole version of reality that doesn't exist. And this is, I think, what's going on in Israel. The problem is they're not talking about the NBA. They're talking about idols. They're talking about God. Talking, this is just utter rejection of God. And, and they're living these lies saying, oh, we're good to go. We're fine. God's with us. It's, 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 it's a falsehood. They've adopted a lie. It's a stronghold in the land. And, and they're, they're, they're bragging. Look, for instance, look at verse 25 really quick. He says, Behold, the days are coming to close the Lord. I'm going to punish those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. I think this gives us an idea as to what they're bragging about. Part of their boasting has to do with their flesh, the marks in their flesh, in this case, circumcision for Israel, which marked them as the people of God. They're saying, Look at what we have. Look at the marks on our body. Or look at the wealth that we've been able to attain. Look at the wisdom that we have. Look at our strength. Do you realize that bragging about all of these things in and of itself is a lie? You can't boast in something that's been given to you, can you? So, for example, last night, my wife and I went out to Outback Steakhouse. Someone, a friend of mine, gave me a gift card to Outback. And, and we actually took uh, Charlene, Jess's sister, with us to Outback. Now, what if we go out to Outback, and I put a picture on Facebook and say... You guys are all trying to get at my money. Look at me, I'm an outback. Look at this steak dinner I'm eating. And you're probably at home eating peanut butter and jelly. It's because you suck. And I look at Charlene, I'm like, hey, you never take me to outback. Can, can I, bra- first of all, that's wrong, period. <laughs> like all boasting and bragging, even if I paid for it on my own, is wrong. And we can all agree on that. And then even more so, if it's clearly a gift that was given to me. I've seen people do this, literally. I've seen people like, you know, take something and then was purely a gift and then brag about it as if they did something. Actually, if we're honest with ourselves, this is all boasting. Because what do you have that is not ultimately a gift from the Lord? Oh, well, I've got my intellect. Who gave it to you? Who gave it to you? I've got my energy. I wake up with so much energy to go out and, 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 and work a good job, and I can do things that other people can't. Okay, who gave you your energy? Did you muster that up on your own? Did you, like, invent an energy pill, and you just created energy out of nothing? No. Everything that we have is a gift. Therefore, boasting in and of itself, my point is this, boasting is lying. It's all rooted in falsehood. Not only are they boasting, but it, it's, it's, they've become good at it. Lying is like an art to them. Look at verse 5. 
Everyone deceives his neighbor and nobody speaks the truth. He says, they have taught their tongue to speak lies. Like they've got a PhD in lying. They've taught themselves how to do it. They've read books on it. They've studied YouTube videos. How can I figure out how to become a really good liar? Now the thing is, is we do this all the time, don't we? We excel in our sin. We become really good at it. Have you ever known someone that's just a good liar? They can get away with it. Like they've lied straight up and you're like, wow, that was so good. Like you should go to Hollywood. That was amazing. You could probably pass a lie detector test while lying. A falsehood has just taken over them as a result in verse 10. And 11, destruction is coming. He says, I will take up wheeling and wailings for the mountains of lamentation for the pastures because they are laid waste. Nobody passes through. The lowing of cattle is not heard. Both birds of the air, the beasts have fled. Verse 11, he says, Jerusalem is going to become a heap of ruins. Jackals or wolves are going to take over. I mean, imagine the inner harbor, completely just destroyed, desolate, no inhabitants, nobody's going down there, and there's just wolves all around the harbor, scavenging, looking for food. That's really the picture of what's coming to Israel. Complete desolation. God will not allow his people to remain in their falsehoods, to remain in their lies, to remain boasting and bragging on what they have, what they have done, and turning away from the knowledge of him. And so in verse 17 through 22, we see that they are to call the mourners. Call the women, he says, the mourners. These are professionals, actually. In the ancient world, you would actually literally hire professional women who would come and mourn and lament and wail at funerals. Uh, and they were good at it, and they would do it. They didn't even know the person. It's just what, this is kind of like today they would say, call the funeral, funeral director. That's essentially what he's saying. Like, it's over. Death is coming. It's imminent. Get the mourners on speed dial. Get them. And by the way, he gives them a song. He says, teach them this, and have them teach their daughters this, which means this is going to go on for a long time. Here's the lament. Here's the dirge in verse 22. He says, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. That is the mourner's song. What is the reason for this? We see it in verse 13. And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it. The issue here is a matter of obedience. Obedience comes from knowing the Lord. They've turned from knowledge of the Lord to knowledge of themselves as they're living this lie, boasting in themselves. That's really the summary of what's going on, which leads us then to the main lesson, which is in verse 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Why? It's because when we just brag on ourselves, when we boast in ourselves, it leads to destruction. Literally, think about this with me for just a moment. Let's use these three categories we're given. Wisdom, strength, and riches. What happens when we boast in our wisdom? Well, go ahead. 
talk about with, like excessive pride and satisfaction with how wise and smart you are, how great your intellect is. Go ahead and do that. What you'll find is that it leads to arrogance, and arrogance ultimately leads to foolishness and to your destruction and to your end. I can't tell you how many wise, arrogant people I have seen live lives of foolishness. How do the mighty fall? They write books on this stuff. What happened with Rome? If you've ever studied any ancient Roman history, what you know is that Rome was a great empire, but Rome, and by the way, great intellect, Rome got arrogant because they were boasting in their wisdom, which led to foolishness, which leads to stupid decisions, which leads to a lack of counsel. And Proverbs says a lack of counsel leads to your destruction. What about this issue of strength? What happens when we boast in our strength? Go ahead and talk with excessive pride and satisfaction with how strong you are. How powerful you are. Man, if you cross me, I got people all over the place. Brag about how many guns you've got. Brag about how quickly you could knock me out. What happens when we boast in our strength? Eventually, we have to show it. That leads to violence, which leads to destruction. Or we could boast in our riches, take satisfaction and excessive pride in the things that we have and our fallback and our safety and our security. What happens when we boast in our riches? It leads to greed, taking advantage of others so we can have more and more and more calloused hearts toward those who have less. It leads to envy, wishing that we had what someone else has. This is all destruction. Bragging in ourselves always leads to destruction. Trip Lee, he's a, he's a, a rapper, musical artist. He has a website called Built to Brag. It's a whole ministry he's built. I love it. Built to Brag. His whole concept is this. We are built, we are wired to brag. The problem is we brag on the wrong stuff. We are built to brag on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are built to brag about our Father. We're built to brag about the power of the Holy Spirit. We are built to brag on God. The problem is, is we've set God aside. And we brag on what we have, and that leads to our destruction. The opposite of bragging on what we have that leads to our destruction is to brag on God, which leads to life. That's where I want to spend the rest of our time together. I want us to be braggadocious. I want us to be braggers. I want us to boast about God. So how do we brag on God? How do we brag on Him? What do we tell the world? What do we tell ourselves? What do we tell our family? As we brag on God, let's break this down. Look at verse 24. He says, Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Which, by the way, is a contrast to verse 3 and verse 6 where it says they don't know me. Same word. Brag on the fact that you know me. That I am the Lord. This is what we brag on. Who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. That's what he wants us to brag on. He wants us to brag on his steadfast love, he wants us to brag on his justice, and he wants us to brag on his righteousness. Can we take a few minutes and break those down? 
First, we brag on his steadfast love. We brag on his steadfast love. I recently read a story of Clarence and Clara, who were happily married for 20 years. He didn't even see it coming. But out of the blue, she said, I want a divorce. You see, three weeks prior, she had met a man who had a lot of stuff, by the way. She had met a man who promised a lot. And she said, we're in love. After three weeks of knowing him. Her kids thought she had lost her mind, that she was insane, that she was foolish. But she left her husband moved in with this guy, his name was Ben, moved in with Ben. And less than two weeks after she moved in with Ben, Ben died of a heart attack. And she was left with nothing. This is actually the story of our spiritual lives. Foolish unfaithfulness to God. looking for something quick, looking for something fast, looking for something better than what God has to give us. And we turn to these things, and we boast in these things, and we find comfort in these things, thinking they're ultimately better, but they are quickly fading. And before you know it, they're gone. And you're left with nothing. Now, the opposite of unfaithfulness is this word here that's used for God, which is hesed in the Greek, or steadfast love as it's translated. It could also be translated faithfulness or covenant faithfulness. It's a word that references the covenantal faithfulness of God. That God will never cheat on you. That God will never break this covenant that He's made with you. That God is always, has always been and will always be a promise-keeping God, and He's made promises to you. And He has a steadfast love. One theologian put it this way, he said, this steadfast love is the character at the core of all true community. Which means you don't actually have community, whether in a marriage or whether in a church, without some kind of steadfast love among those who belong to this covenant. A sense of faithfulness. If there's no understanding of faithfulness, then you lose that community. Does that make sense? So, for those of you who are in marriages, I can use you as an example. You guys experience some of this. Probably in an imperfect way. There's a sense of steadfast love in your marriage. Those of us part of a church, we experience some of this. But with God, we experience all of it. God is entirely steadfast in His love for you. Let me break it down this way. Think of of your, your own story. Imagine you were saved at 18 years old. And at 20, you go through a season of doubt and questioning the commitment that you made when you were 18. You kind of come out of that Get, you belong to a church, you, 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 you get some good Christian friends, you move in with some, some, uh, uh, some other friends, and you're doing well, but then 30 hits, 
And at 30, it's like, man, I kind of missed out on some things at 25, and I want to catch up. And you go through a little time of rebellion at 30. You come out of that by God's grace, and 40 comes along. 40. And this is when you lose it. All right? It's called midlife crisis. It's time, it's time to be 20 again. And you do some crazy things at 40. But you kind of come out of that as well, and you keep trotting along, and you repair some relationships that you screwed up, and, and then now you're 50, and, and now at 50, you're, you're, you're struggling with some complacency. You don't have the spiritual drive and energy that you did when you were 26. But you kind of keep pushing on and pressing on, and now you're 60. And at 60, you, you, you find a lot of angst towards some of these young people who just don't get it. You find some judgmentalism creeping up in your soul that you kind of have to press and push out and keep pushing forward, and, 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 and now you're 70. And at 70, you're, you're kind of comfortable. So comfortable, in fact, that you forget sometimes that you need the Lord. Around 78, you get Alzheimer's. And by the time you pass at 80, you don't even remember what the word Christian even means. You don't even remember who Jesus is. You've completely lost memory of, it, of everything and anything. And you die. That's a common story, isn't it? It might be your story. Listen, do you realize that from the time you were saved at 18... Rebelled at 20, rebelled at 30, midlife crisis at 40, complacent at 50, judgmental at 60, problems at 70, Alzheimer's at 78, death at 80. Do you realize that this entire time, God has never changed? During this entire life of wandering and struggling and back and forth, God has remained 100% steadfast in His love for you. From uh, uh, the entire time, from 18 to 80, a life of, of struggling to, to, to be faithful to God, to do what you know is right, God has never once wavered in His faithfulness toward you. Here's my point. Amen. Here's my point. If I try to evaluate my relationship with God based on my love for God, I'm telling you right now, it's shaky. But if I evaluate my relationship with God based on God's love for me, it is steadfast, unshakable. And that is the hope of salvation. I got nothing to brag about. I got nothing to boast in other than boasting in His steadfast love for me. Amen? Amen. Secondly, secondly, we boast in His justice. In His justice. What does that mean? There was an actor, famous actor, who was on his deathbed dying, and a friend of his comes in, and he saw the man reading, reading a Bible, and, and you know, this is very strange for this actor to be reading a Bible, and so his friend says, what's going, what happened to you, what's, what's the matter? And, and the actor said, I'm looking for loopholes. 
family, there, 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 there aren't any loopholes in God's justice. You're not going to find loopholes with God. God is a just God. You can't wiggle out of His justice. You, you tracking with me? Now, this is a good thing. And a lot of times we just assume justice is good, which, by the way, uh, um, the old Baltimore Sun reporter, uh, what's his name? Mencken? Machen? Mencken? Machen? How do we say it? Machen? Mencken? H.L. Mencken? He said, injustice is easy. Justice stings. See, a lot of times we say, oh, we want to be people of justice. Do you realize that justice does have a sting to it? You realize that? Like when we think of God's justice, that is a right understanding of God's care for the oppressed, His care for the poor, His care for the downtrodden, and, and, and He comes with justice. But as we recognize that we are, yes, both the oppressed, but we're also the oppressor as sinners. We've got to recognize that that does come with a sting. But his justice is always good. And let me explain this to you. Frederick Bickner, an old preacher, he put it this way. He says, if you break a good law, justice is in invoked. Not only for goodness sake, but for the good of your soul. What does he mean by that? Well, what he's saying is, is that if, if God just simply allows injustice to reign in your own life as you break a law, then disorder will be all about in your life. So there's justice, meaning I, I, I do something wrong and there's a sense in which I have to pay for that. Or maybe it's just simply the sting of knowing that I did something wrong and having to walk with that. All of that is, a, in a sense, that's God's justice in our life. But this is a good thing, because if we didn't have that, we would just continue down this destructive path, and there would only be disorder in our lives and in our communities. So while justice brings a sting, it is always good for you, and it is always good for your soul. Are you tracking with me? Now check this out. God, as judge... He's a just God. And His judgment always holds up to the closest of scrutiny. With human judges, we can always examine them and their rulings and find some loopholes or find some problems, find some issues with their judgment that might not be quite just. But with God, He, is, he always judges rightly. Now this is good news for those who are oppressed by sin and see the cross. When we look at Israel, there's complete disorder. There's a sense in which God has lifted His justice from them for a moment. 
And as a result, they've boasted in their strength, they've moved to violence. They've boasted in their wisdom, they've, moved, they've boasted in their riches, etc., etc. And what we have in Israel as we've been exploring it is we have a society where the oppressed and the poor are downtrodden, the widows are not taken care of, the orphans are not taken care of, they're, they're, uh, they're sacrificing their children at the altars of Malak. Uh, there's, there's sexual immorality all over the place. They've turned to idols. It is absolute disorder and chaos. We, in this moment, need the justice of God. We need some order that only the judge can bring. And where do we find that order? We find it in the cross. You see, in the cross... We, we, we see where, how, how justice and mercy uh, meets us. Justice and mercy, they're not opposed to each other. God doesn't set aside His justice in order to be merciful. But God is both just and merciful at the same time, and we see that highlighted in the cross. How so? First, in the cross we see the grim reality of our sin as the judgment of God is poured out on Jesus Christ for our sin. Even that is merciful, in that we see the reality of our sin. We see the sting of our sin as it's poured out in Christ. But what's more is a transaction takes place. And Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. Now, if God is a just God, will He require a double payment? Like if Jacob owes me $5, all right, and Eric comes along and pays me the $5 that Jacob owes, would it be just for me to go to Jacob and say, hey, you owe me $5? No, that would be wrong, wouldn't it? If Jesus has paid it all, if He's paid... The, the penalty for our sin, can God now come to you and say, hey, I still need to get some, get some payment out of you. I still got a little bit of punishment left. I still got a little bit of hell for you left. No, that would be called requiring a double payment. But God is just. And in His mercy, He is just. So he pours out his penalty, for our penalty for our sin onto his son. And in his righteousness, he grants us forgiveness. He grants us mercy. We become recipients of his mercy. And we, then we, guys, we turn, in turn live lives of justice. How can we oppress the poor when God has lifted us up? How can we not recognize the beauty and the dignity of all people, all gender, all ethnicity, everybody from everywhere, recognizing the image of God that's planted on every face and protect that and, and fight for that and, and value if, if we are recipients of God's justice and mercy. So what do we boast in? We boast in His justice. Lastly, we boast in His righteousness. It says He has steadfast love. It says He's just. And it says that God is righteous in all of the earth. What does His righteousness mean? There's a father and a son who were lost in the woods. And the father is, uh, comes up with a plan and he, he, he knows something about the way the stars 
the way that they're aligned in the sky. And so he's able to find the North Star and he's able to somewhat create a map in his head as, as to where they're going and take the correct path uh, to, to find his way out of the woods. So his son holding his hand, walking behind him, following him. And his father says, look at the stars. Let me show you. Let me teach you this so you, so you won't get lost. And the son says, I can't understand that. I'll just follow you and I will never be lost. Don't you realize God doesn't ask us to figure out how he knows the right way. He doesn't ask us to figure out what the right path is. He doesn't ask us to look at the stars and to find a pathway home. God doesn't ask us to figure out his wisdom. God just simply asks us to follow him. And with the psalm, we can say, yeah, we will look at you, follow you, and we will never be lost. This is what it means to actually brag in his righteousness. What do I mean by that? It's because what I mean is God is right. He's the standard of morality. He's the standard of, of, of holiness. He's right. And Jesus said, come and follow me. As we follow him, we know that we are on the right path. A pathway that is leading to life and not a pathway that is leading to our death. God is the standard of integrity. He is the definition of holiness. He is the pathway to life. God shows us in His righteousness what is normal. And you say, well, sin is normal. No, it's not really. It's ordinary, but it's not normal. God shows us what is normal. He shows us what normal social relationships should look like. He shows us uh, what it should normally look like when we interact with each other. He shows us the norm for legal issues. He shows us what's normal when it comes to all ethical issues. He leads us on the path of righteousness. We could summarize the Bible story in this way. God sets the standard. And the standard is the standard which He has always had for all of eternity, and that is holiness. Humans fall, rebel from the standard. Humans create a lot of problems and chaos as a result. God restores a people. And this people will be a people who reflect to the world who he is, his standard, his righteousness. Now you say, well, that's kind of problematic because I still have sin in my life. True, true. So let's just think for a moment about God's righteousness. In the Bible, we see two aspects of God's righteousness, imputed righteousness and actual righteousness. Let me explain this to you briefly. Imputed righteousness happens when you get saved. Imputed righteousness happens at conversion when we turn to God in faith and God takes the whole of His righteousness in Christ and places it into our broke bank accounts. And then He declares us righteous. So Carde, trusting in Christ, is declared righteous. Question, is Carde actually righteous? Tony? Go ahead and talk about Carde for a minute. Why do you say he's not actually righteous? Now, no, you don't got to give me evidence. 
You don't got to give me evidence. But it's true. We're not actu- I'm not actually righteous. I'm declared to be righteous. Meaning I have the righteous clothing and covering of Jesus Christ all over me. And God has counted His righteousness to be my righteous righteousness. But I don't actually live a 100% righteous life. But do you understand imputed righteousness? This is what's called justification. We are justified. We are made right. We are aligned as we receive His righteousness. But secondly, the second part, and this is what we sometimes often forget, is that God does actually make us more righteous over time. This is what we call in the Bible sanctification. It's the process of actually becoming righteous. Which is a process that won't be finished until we die and get new bodies that are freed from sin. But in this life, we actually become more righteous. We, we, we follow our Father who is leading us down the pathway of life. And as we walk that path, what we discover is that we are becoming more like His Son, Jesus Christ. And that it truly is a pathway. This isn't a burden. This isn't a chore. But His righteousness is life. So what do we brag in? We don't brag in ourselves. We've got nothing to boast about. What do we brag in? We brag in the fact that God is faithful to us, that God is just, and that God is righteous in all He does. In a world of wrong, God is right. The world says, oh, what can I keep? Oh, what can I get? Oh, what can I get away with? But those who are being made righteous in Jesus Christ, His people, we ask, no, what is right? What is right? So husbands, love your wives. Not because you feel like it, but because it's right. Wives, respect your husbands. Not because you feel like it, but because it's right. Children, obey your parents. Amen? Not because you feel like it, but because it's right. Workers, do all things for the glory of God and and work with integrity and honesty. Not because you always feel like it, but because it's right. We're people who are following and bragging about the fact that we have a God who is righteous and leading us down this pathway of righteousness. Now, if it were up to me, I would look more like Israel here in this passage. If it were left up to me, I would, have, I would boast in my wisdom, in my strength, and in my riches. If it were up to me, Babylon would sweep in and bring utter destruction into my life and I would be under God's judgment for all of eternity. But it's not up to me. God made a decision on my behalf that pertains to me as He set His affections on me. God in His wisdom saved me from what I could have become and saved you from what you could have become. God is wise. He knows all things. He's what we call omniscient. There's nothing He doesn't know. This is the God that we're talking about. The God that we serve. God is all-powerful. 
Omnipotent is the word that we often use for that. It means that there's nothing that he cannot do. He has all the strength that you can imagine. God has all riches. Everything that is the world's is his. This is the God who has come to you and has saved you and has said, stop bragging about yourself. Like in this moment of your life, now's not the time to be looking at yourself. But now's the time to be looking at Him. Now's the time to be getting to know Him. And then bragging about Him. Bragging about how He's faithful in His love for you. How He never will leave you and He will never forsake you. Brag about His justice. And how He cares for the oppressed. And how He is a God of both justice and mercy. Brag about His righteousness. How God is the standard of all integrity and morality and His ways are the best ways and His paths are the paths that lead us to peace. What do we have to boast in, church? What do we have to boast in? To those who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn, all glory be to Christ. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can be in your word. We ask that we would become people who brag on you all of the time. I pray that we would remind our hearts, our souls, that there's nothing within us to boast about, but that we would boast in your character, in your salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.